Hello and welcome to the Stat Dose podcast. My name's Matt Young. And I'm Joe Francis, and this is Debriefing the Debrief. Welcome to Debriefing the Debrief, where we take a deeper dive into three areas of interest highlighted in our simulation-based learning sessions. This week, students were faced with simulated patients presenting with allergies and confused states. And from this, we're going to be talking about a few main points, specifically the ABCD approach. We're going to be talking about ABGs versus VBGs. And we're going to be talking about use of language in front of patients and specific medico jargonous language. It's not a word, but if you say it confidently enough, it will become one. Fine, thanks for that, Joe. Lovely introduction. So yeah, so we're going to be talking about the the A to E assessment, and it's kind of bread and butter stuff, really, isn't it? It's it's the core of what we do in sim. It's the core of what we do in practice. So the core of what I do in my practice, that is essentially the job of emergency medicine, is just to do an A to E assessment and then refer them on. Um, I mean, <laughs> do an adequate full a full ED assessment Goodness. via. Doing A to E and then getting bored of the patient, um, but yeah, it is it is it's something that is ultimately quite boring, but an incredibly useful tool to allow you to get a brief, comprehensive assessment of of the potentially very unwell patient. It's set out in in that way, starting with airway, then breathing, then circulation, disability, and exposure slash environment, so that you treat the most life threatening condition first. I.e., if you have an airway problem, that's going to kill you before a B problem. Therefore, you treat the airway problem first. Mm-hmm. I think generally, though, our students are pretty good at doing an A to E assessment once they get to the to the last the latter years, anyway. Yeah, I think the important elements of an A B C D always strikes me the, the things that we see in simulation that may be forgotten in terms mm. of certain areas is what is the priority within each of those sections. So, what vital sign or what assessment is a priority in B? What vital sign or what assessment is the priority in C? Now, I always say to students, the first thing that you want to know when you're assessing breathing is, is the patient breathing or do I need to start ventilating them? Mm. And for that, you need to take a respiratory rate. It's very useful to get blood oxygen saturations to auscultate and percuss the chest, but a respiratory rate must be taken in the B part of your ABCD mm. assessment those shallow respirations, you might miss a, a patient who's got a respiratory rate of 40 or mm-hmm. equally 4 that you need to start intervening on qu- quite quickly. Thinking about commonly missed things, I think we'll just quickly, if that's right with you, Joe, just quickly go over some of the aspects that our, our year five students miss, forget, to highlight them, to try and solidify that A to E assessment as a really useful tool for our students. And I suppose the first, if we start from the airway point of view, as Joe said at the introduction, this was the allergy and, and confused states week. And I don't want to ruin the sim for anybody, but uh, allergy does include anaphylaxis. And it's, it, I don't think I'm hopefully not, you know, confused. You know. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And I think it often comes up in that session where you have anaphylaxis, life-threatening, airway, swelling. A lot of our students recognise that because of the history they're given, and they sort of go, "When do I give adrenaline?" And they often will do almost get to C, maybe even D, mm-hmm. before they prescribe that medication. And I suppose it's just thinking. Probably, it's probably how we teach it. So when we teach assessing managing airways, we're, we're quite hot on teaching head tilt, chin lift, jaw thrust, 
adjuncts, nasopharyngeal, oropharyngeal, even eye gels. And actually, we don't really think adrenaline as a medication is an airway medication. Yeah, yeah. Adrenaline nebs. If there's a creepy child, we might use budesonide nebs. Might give them dexamethasone to reduce the airway swelling. These are airway interventions. So I think just, just remembering medications as part of your airway assessment will ensure quicker management and resolution of an airway problem. I've never really thought of it in that way. I've incorporated it into my practice, but I never thought about actually treating airway Mm. with a medication. So, yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. Think about a a couple of other things that are are missed, and particularly in circulation. If that patient is critically unwell, we need to get a cannula in. Mm. And, And I always just associate cannula with blood, blood with circulation. So make sure that we're getting cannulas in, whether that needs to be bilateral access or not. Taking off some bloods, taking off ABGs, VBGs, which we'll discuss, um, but also get a 12-lead ECG. 12-lead ECGs are so helpful Mm. for for a vast array of patients, and to get a baseline 12-lead ECG is is really, really imperative. So at minimum, getting some ECG monitoring on Mm. in C. And then we were thinking about what to include in E, weren't we, Matt? Mm. It's, it's, It's difficult because it's one of those things, often fluid balance i.e. looking at a fluid chart, urine output, input things. Looking at that fluid balance chart often comes in E or even after E because mm. you've done that A to, A to D assessment and then it's a, it's a physical physical chart. I know a lot of students and a lot of colleagues that I work with will include that in C and I think that's, that's reasonable to do as okay. well. Yeah. So you're looking at almost renal function as part of C. So are they fluid overloaded? Are they underfilled? Do I need to give them a fluid bolus? I understand why it makes sense in C. Sure. From a practicality point of view, if you're on a ward, then it's probably going to be easier to include it as part of the E assessment as you step away from that patient and have a look at the trends of the OBS and the trends of the fluid balance. But I think as long as you consider it and put it in you know, C or E for whatever reason, as long as you can justify it, I think the key is, is making sure you do it though. So look at fluid balance, ask for a fluid balance chart. The, the more we ask for them, the better they'll get filled out. And I think that's an important point to make as well. That they're often underfilled because it's difficult to measure input and output for a lot of our patients on the ward. And if we continue to ask for them, the documentation and scribing from that from our nursing colleagues will get better as well. And I suppose it's the same point with temperature. Joe, where do you put temperature in your A2 assessment? I guess I always think of temperature and blood glucose together yeah. from my paramedic training, but yeah, temperature can, can come really in, in disability, mm. it can come in exposure examination, environment, just as long as we tack it on to the end of that, because actually it's quite an interesting observation in that sometimes it won't give you anything, but sometimes that it can differentiate what was previously an undifferentiated patient presenting with, for example, shock-type symptoms, Mm. if they've then got a pyorexia slapped on there, Mm. you then really start to think about a septic picture, aren't you? And Mm. so it's a really important observation uh, to have. So I I usually get a blood glucose and a temperature in and around the same sort of time, whether that's in D or, or whether that's in E. I guess moving on from sort of common things that we're seeing that are missed or that we have potentially missed in our own practice and have to remind ourselves from is that it's really crucial to know that, yes, it's good to go from danger response, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, right through to environment. But actually, if there is something that is really, really concerning you at a specific point in that, in that examination, 
and you don't feel that you have the skill or you don't feel that the intervention that you are going to do is going to be effective enough, then you can escalate to a senior at that stage. Mm. You don't always have to do the complete A to E. A lot of the time, because actually, by the time you have escalated and the uh, that individual, that clinician or uh, whatever you've chosen to escalate to... Um, is going to arrive. Whatever. I mean, whatever. No, I, and so I mean as in, uh, are you escalating to get different medication, oh, for example? Um, yeah, yeah, a non-human entity. Um, but but by the time they get there, you would have probably had time to to actually finish that, that ATV yeah, anyway. So true. even if you, you're looking at an airway and going, this is really, really difficult to manage, um, it's okay to, to escalate it at that point. Mm. And remember, if you are doing interventions then go back and go back to A and reassess to see if that intervention has made any difference. Because if it hasn't, you will need to escalate or you will need to do something different. Mm. So yeah, that was just a quick chat about the A to E assessment and hopefully has provided you with a few things that kind of we try and instill in our practice and have learned through through experience and and, and some of the things that we, we commonly see whilst while simulating this in, in educational practice. The other thing that we were going to talk about was ABGs versus VBGs, Matt. Mm. So, so what's your take on this? Well, it's, it's an area I'm quite hot on, and I, I do get on my high horse about quite a lot. Okay. Because a lot of our students, and actually a lot of clinicians that I work with still, equate this patient is unwell to this patient therefore requires an ABG. Mm. And I, I completely disagree with that as a statement. I agree that if a patient is unwell, they need a blood gas, but that does not need to be an arterial blood gas. The differences between arterial and venous blood gas are actually, with these modern analyzers, becoming smaller and smaller. So the pH is largely equivalent. Lots of the electrolytes are largely equivalent. The bicarbonate is largely equivalent. Obviously, your oxygen isn't, and your CO2 isn't. But your CO2 is generally around 0.5 to 0.8 higher on a venous gas than it is an arterial. So you can have a vague understanding of what that patient's arterial co2 is doing and remember that a normal venous co2 excludes hypercarbia from an arterial sample and the reason i don't like arterial blood gases generally is because they're actually potentially very harmful to the patient you're putting a needle in an artery you're therefore risking causing distal ischemia you're risking forming a hematoma or an aneurysm or a pseudo aneurysm in that artery if you're doing a femoral stab, you can actually go through the artery into the vein, cause an AV fistula there. But really, it, it's incredibly painful for patients. And I think that's why I don't like doing them so much. Because if you're that person taking that sample, that patient that doesn't like you, for, for good reason. Um, yeah. And you can use um, local anaesthetic. But the issue with local anaesthetic is, A, it hurts putting the needle in, because it's still a very sensitive area. You get that bee sting effect afterwards and the local anaesthetic has been known to reduce the size of the artery and I certainly noticed that in practice that I feel a good artery once I've injected the local anaesthetic and that's worked the artery then is a lot smaller and more difficult to get so venous gases are a lot easier to get because most patients who are acutely unwell you will cannulate them so you can give them medication and at that time if you just take off your blood samples take off a venous gas rather than doing an arterial gas you'll save yourself a lot of time running around getting another needle hurting the patient. The key question you need to ask yourself when somebody says, can you do an arterial blood gas on that patient, is what additional information does this arterial blood gas mm. give me that a venous wouldn't? And if you don't have an adequate answer for that, or if your senior doesn't have an adequate answer for that, then a venous is probably satisfactory. 
Arterial blood gases we will still use for a lot of our NIV patients where you need to know an accurate carbon dioxide, an accurate oxygen level, so you can adapt the NIV settings. That being said, certainly the respiratory unit in the trust I work uses capillary gases to adapt their NIV. So here you prick the skin of the finger like you would to take a blood glucose, you draw off a small sample and you run that. And as I said, some of the NIV centres across the country are starting to use capillary blood gases because they're efficacious enough to do that. Yeah, sure. And I mean, a lot of the time I've, I have seen people get capillary gases mm. at the at the triage stage. Yeah. And, and sometimes they're brought around to me because, I don't know, they may they may be presenting with an abdominal pain mm. and they, they get a capillary blood gas as part of that kind of profile uh, being triaged. And actually then they're brought around to me where I work predominantly in the, in the kind of primary care mm. setting um, as a abdominal pain that is presumably based on the history in the triage and that uh, capillary gas. Mm not uh, of a critical nature and and we can and we can use all of those data points to to kind of triage, triage them more effectively as well as get a very quick understanding of their VBG profile in a critically unwell patient in recess for example Definitely. so it's it's becoming more and more incorporated into our practice mm. and i think they are just fantastic pieces of kit they are i think the other the other key area we use them in is is pediatrics as well yeah. certainly very small you know children who don't communicate you're essentially doing veterinary medicine if you get a capillary blood gas sample from that child who is pyrexic, tachycardic, more often than not, we like to say, oh, it's a viral infection because it just sounds like it is. Mm. But every now and again, we're going to miss that unwell septic child who is presenting as if they're a viral. Yeah. And actually, a capillary blood gas is a useful measure of how unwell is this child? Sure. Do they have, yeah. Are they acidotic? Is the lactate raised? Yeah, I think that's um, it's really interesting because obviously working in an out of hours fashion in, in primary care as I do I see a lot of these mm. presentations and actually something like that to be made available mm. and, I, and I think it will probably in the future oh, yeah, definitely, come along yeah. but, but but would be really really useful not to take over my decision making but just to again add, as, add another data point mm. to differentiate that sick child from mm. that well child absolutely it never overrides clinical judgment but it's just as you say another useful tool to help in your assessment of that patient yeah I mean, I, I think the future is having capillary blood gases on ambulances. Sure, honest. yeah. And and uh, again, for, for paramedic experience, that would have been something that I would have found exceptionally useful. Mm. Think about, you know, measuring lactate, which mm. has been studied quite considerably in terms of ruling in or out red flags slash severe mm. sepsis. It's still there now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. then it's not something that's currently possible no. uh, in the out-of-hospital environment. But yet we go to these patients every single day mm. and so uh, whether these new capillary reading machines will come out and kind of be available for ambulances um, and, and pre-hospital practitioners we're, we're yet to see. I know I spoke to a, a critical care paramedic recently who was getting a VBG machine installed on the local air ambulance mm. so it's something that's coming in for critical care I wonder whether it will come in for our frontline paramedicine. We will see. We will see. Who knows. Right, so that was a semi-rant, <laughs> semi-useful discussion about the differences between arterial venous and even capillary gases. So the final topic we're just going to go over briefly is using medical language in front of patients, how to do it sensitively and properly. Well, it's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? And we, we, we sort of thought, how, how are we going to put this bit mm. Sensi sensibly and, and properly, I guess, when I'm thinking about that, makes me think there is a proper way to do it. Mm. And it's so difficult when we're talking about these soft skills like um, communication because there is a way that you can do it poorly 
yes. but there are then so many different ways that you could probably do it well and so what we're not pretending to to do here is to give you a kind of binary option as to this is how you must communicate with the patient and it is very context dependent and you will tend to find that these sort of skills come along with with experience but it's just quite interesting watching this unfold in a simulation which again is a strange environment that is pseudo assessed mm. and and in education and it's but it's interesting watching this communication unfold within this um, scenario and um, whether it is authentic or not and the reason we bring it up is because for the last couple of sessions that we've undertaken there's been quite a significant discussion about how do we communicate with our team with a patient who is conscious and who will be hearing what we're saying and how do we communicate with the team so they know what they're doing communicate with the patient so that the patient feels at ease if if that is possible or is not being alarmed by certain terms so mm. things that we were thinking of just before we started recording this were terms like this patient might have heart failure now that sounds pretty drastic mm. to a to to a patient i know it's something that we're very you know, commonly uh, used to using, but failure. It's, well, it sounds like the heart stopped. I mean, yeah. a lot of patients have said, does that mean my heart doesn't beat anymore? Yeah. And, well, no, 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 no. no. But that's uh, what yeah. it sounds like, isn't it? And what was the other? Oh, massive, massive PE. Yeah. It's a massive yeah. PE. Yeah. And, and a lot of these terms are used, but we just need to be very cautious of, of, um, of how we do that. I think it's certainly in my practice, if I'm trying to communicate with both my team and the patient, I, I will do it sort of at the same time. Mm. So I will say something, I know that this is an assessment type element, but I will say, for example, if I'm assessing the chest, I'll say, okay, John, so I'm, I'm just going to assess your chest now and I'm going to auscultate your chest just to check for any signs of any I will say any signs of crackles or any signs of wheezes, and then I will say that that may make me think are the, the tubes constricted or is there fluid on your lungs, for example. So I'm using both terms. My team knows what I'm doing and the patient knows what I'm doing. And then afterwards, I, I, I will have auscultated that chest and then come up. So I, on, on that left-hand side, it sounds absolutely perfect, really good, John. And then on that right-hand side, I can hear a little bit of crackles, which may lead me to think that there might be a little bit of an infection there. And if you say that and, and you're in front of your team, you're doing an A2E assessment on somebody who's tachycardic and hypotensive quit, uh, and with a bit of fever query cause, you've then mm. just informed your team that you might have found a, a, a source of that fever and, and shock, whilst also telling the patient. And that is a way of broaching that kind of dichotomy of, of, of talking. Mm. A lot of the questions that we will get surrounding that are then, what if you do find a positive yeah. finding? So you find that patient is in fact having a myocardial infarction because mm. you can see ST elevation mm. or what if you find, like I just said, that there is some crackles on the chest or something like that. And I think... We're moving away significantly from not telling the patient things. I think that's yes. quite old practice now. And actually, I like to be really, really transparent with my patient. Similarly, if I haven't found anything and I don't know what's going on, the way in which I tend to do this is that I... Let's give the example of I don't know what's going on because that's a very scary thing to, to try and communicate to a patient. The way in which I do that is I will say, I understand that you've got chest pain um, and and... This is a significant concern for you. It's a significant concern for me, and I hear you. What we worry about in terms of chest pain are the following, and I will say things like, 
heart attack. I will say things like an infection of the heart. And then I will say how I am assessing and managing those potentials. So we know um, at the minute that it doesn't look to be a heart attack because I have listened to your heart. I have done an ECG, uh, which doesn't show anything, which is a trace of your heart. And I've sent off some blood tests to, to rule that out further, which we'll receive back. Patients don't always necessarily need to know the diagnosis right there. They just need to know that you are trying your best to mm. find out what's going on and that you are making active mm. decisions and active management plans in their best interests. If that is going on and you're commu communicating that effectively, nine times out of ten, that patient is satisfied, actually. Yeah, definitely. I think being, being honest with the patient, I don't think we couldn't encourage that more. Yeah. I think that Joe's approach there... Is, is very good because as you say you explain the conditions as you go along and you explain what you're going to do about each of those conditions so as you said with that with that example there I don't think it's a heart attack because of x y and z but I'm going to rule it out by doing some blood tests and right. that way the patient is reassured that if it is something sinister like that we're going to catch it early I'll give you a perfect example actually of something that perfect I was, example. I was just up. thinking of <laughs> perfect example and so this is uh, a little bit of giving away my uh inadequacies in certain areas of medicine but Ooh. in my practice I see a lot of febrile children mm. who come in with a rash mm. and I am not a dermatologist mm. and some of those rashes uh, they seem to be different every single time I look at them and what are we concerned about really when we see a child who is coming in with a rash and a fever the main thing of course that we are concerned about and the parents are concerned about is is this meningitis and so I will assess that patient and I will communicate with the parents and I will know deep down that I might not have the exact answer to what that rash is. It's probably a lot of the time a viral exanthem of some description. However, I, won't f I, won't, I don't know for sure. Mm. And so what I will say to the parents is what I have ruled out. So it does not look to be a meningitis type rash because a meningitis rash looks like this. This rash is blanching. It is this. It is that. And that puts the parents at ease, patient if necessary. And it means that you've just because you don't know something, it doesn't mean that you haven't ruled out the things that are worrying them at that time. Mm. And, so, and then you can kind of allude to the fact that there are lots of different rashes. Most of these things are, are actually benign and as a result of that viral infection. Mm -hmm. And so it's just about that communication. You can, I was thinking, get away with, but it's not really getting away with, is no. it? Because it's good practice of medicine. You can circumvent the need to always have to give a diagnosis if you have ruled out all of those nasty things that are going to harm that patient. And the patients are usually absolutely fine with that. And it's about being open and transparent. And that is how I do my, my practice mm. a lot of the time. Mm, definitely. I don't want to turn this chat into a Breaking Bad News chat because that's not what it's about. Sure. But I think going back to our previous example of heart failure, I think if there is evidence of that or even our massive PE that we talked about, again, be honest with the patient. So offer a brief explanation. So if you're talking about heart failure, saying my examination and the x-ray that we've done would suggest that your heart is, is in what we call failure. This is where the heart doesn't pump as well as we'd like, so therefore fluid backs up onto your chest. Don't worry, though, you're in the right place. What we're going to do is give you some medication to offload some of that fluid and make you feel a bit better. Mm. So there you offer an explanation, you reassure the patient, you explain to them what you're going to do, and you therefore put them at ease. Same with, the, with something like the massive PE. You might not want to say that word, but you might want to say the investigations have shown that there's, there's a clot on your lung, which is why you've got that pain and why you're feeling short of breath. The clot is quite large, which would put it into the severe category. I don't want to alarm you, but we do need to get some medication on board yeah. quite quickly. And this is what we're going to do about that. 
So again, you don't lie to the patient. So if they are that unwell, let them and say things like, this would put you in the you know, severe category or the concerning category. But explain to them what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Great. Okay. So we've run through three main things um, in this episode. So we've gone through ABCD approach. We've talked about um, or Matt has ranted about <laughs> ABGs versus VBGs. I know that if I ever get the option, it's always going to be VBGs now. I've got capillary. I'll have <laughs> Matt looking over my shoulder. And we've talked about using uh, language in front of patients and, and ways in which you can kind of circumvent that, that quite difficult mm. aspect of, of clinical care. Matt, have you got anything else to add? No, uh, I don't actually. I think it's, it's a, good, a good episode. And um, Joe, have you got our witty sign-off of the week? I don't know if I've got a witty sign-off of the week, but guys, thanks for listening. Keep it brief, listen to your debriefs, and stay out of grief. Oh! (laughs) We'll hear you next time.